The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So if we find a comfortable posture, the back is straight, the shoulders are opened, and trying to be aware of the body as we sit here. So the body is an anchor, and in the background, we hear sound, there are thoughts and feelings arising and passing away. As we pay attention to the body, we can be aware of the sensation of contact, aware of the air on the cheeks, aware of the body on the clothes, sensation of the clothes on the body, aware of the sensation of contact on the hands on each other or on the thighs.
We can also be aware of sensations in the body arising and passing away. As we anchor our awareness in the body.
If a sensation in the body remains for a little while, looking deeply into the sensation, experiencing its fluid, changing nature, as we are aware of the body now, anchoring in the body right now. So this afternoon, I would like to continue with the Eightfold Path. And the one I like to look at is the one generally called Right View. No, Right Thought. Sorry, we've already done Right View. So Right Thought, but which also is sometimes is translated as Right Intention, Samasankapa. But actually, it's more Thought than intention, but thought as thought moving us then towards an action. So let's call it appropriate thought and seeing the definition. And so the, the definition and what monks is appropriate thought, appropriate thinking. It is a thought of renunciation the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness. This monks is called appropriate thought. So in a way, appropriate thinking is not some kind of amazing thought. I mean, it's fairly simple. Harmlessness, non-ill will, renunciation. So in a way, it's kind of looking a little at what is. I would nearly say that's what the mindfulness, awareness, the meditation helps us to become more aware. What is the feeling? What is the tonality of our thought? And which way are they going towards? Are they inclining towards something that is harmful or inclining towards something that is harmless? Are they inclining toward ill will? Are they inclining toward something which is non-aggressive, which is peaceful? Are they inclining toward renunciation? Are they inclining toward acquisition? So in a way, again, one has to be careful. This is not about judging our thought, but in a way, exploring what am I thinking, how am I thinking, and what is this leading to? Because what is interesting with thoughts is like words. They are really unsubstantial. They're just a little firing in the brain. And then this just little electricity in the brain can just have very nice consequences or really terrible consequences. And that's why I think it's quite important 
to become more mindful of our thought without it making us more self-conscious. Because that's what is interesting with mindfulness. Sometimes it can make us more self-conscious or can just make us more aware of the various conditions in a spacious way. So harmlessness, not to harm self and others. And what is interesting is to look what can be considered like harmful thinking. And so generally we think of, you know, either thoughts which are quite nasty toward myself or thoughts which are quite nasty toward others. These are fairly uh, obvious. But what is even more interesting is in a way to see even what you might call ordinary thought and how they can have such also an impact physiologically on us. If we look at planning, planning is something we often do when we sit in meditation, often do when we are in daily life. And what is interesting with planning is that then you can start to have the planning of the planning of the planning. So you plan, you try to remember what you plan, you try not to forget what you plan. And and this actually can be, I would say, quite stressful. And so in a way, how can we use a creative function of planning? Because we need to plan to come here, I need to plan to come here but without it, again, being so repetitive. I mean, I used to do a lot of planning until I realized that if I did too much planning, actually, it gave me lots of pain in the stomach, as my stomach is a little weak. And so I started to do meditation in Korea, and then the planning, the planning really went down. And then I was, my stomach got better too. And then I stopped being a nun and I went to live in England. And then after many, many years of having not a specific pain in the stomach, suddenly I realized I was having that pain. And I thought, what's going on? I eat the food, is fine. Why am I having this pain? And then I realized I was planning because for the first time we were going to South Africa and I was constantly planning the planning, remembering the planning not forgetting the planning and non-stop. And so as soon as I saw that, I stopped it. So that's not worth it. And also realize how much planning do you need? So in a way, it's kind of like being aware of our thought, not fighting the thought as much as questioning the thought. And is it harmful or harmless to think in that way? And could I have more spaciousness with that type of thinking? Another interesting thing to look at in terms of the mindfulness and the thought is the inner language. Is to kind of really look that our thought generally comes in words. So there is like this inner commenting. And then it's interesting to look at what words am I using? What is it I am telling myself or telling myself about others a lot of the time. And that I think we can really question, and some of it, like often, we might use very harmful words, very categorical, very aggressive toward ourselves or others, or just the words, always. I'm always stupid. I never do anything right. I mean, at one level, it seems quite innocuous, but actually this is quite painful because this leads, again, generally, you start to think this, and then to inaction. It's very interesting. I am hopeless? Then you can't do anything. I'm stupid? I can't do anything. So to see that generally this kind of thought will have a kind of immediate impact. Or when you say, you know, you will never change. Talk about harmful. You know, it's kind of quite uncompassionate to say that to somebody. You will always be the same. And they can have tendency, but they generally are not. And we are not always the same. Again, according to condition, we might change. 
And also, what I found an interesting one with that is generalization. We, can, we see, to survive, we need to generalize. This is what our brain is, has evolved to do that. Makes category, makes general remark. But the problem with that, if we fix it, I mean, recently I was in a wonderful uh, conference in the Garrison Institute in June. And you had like the, what's called, what, what was it called? Not the ancient, the pioneers. So basically the pioneers were the old ones. 60 plus, 55 plus. And then you had the young one, which were the next gen. And then they were like 30, 40 the new, the new young was 45. But what was interesting that they were very nicely, they invited people from very diverse group. And then we had this whole group, quite a lot of them, about five to 10, covered into two, really covered into two, which often I don't uh, meet people who are covered into two. And you could think, I mean, often we have this idea, the way people look, what they wear, etc. You think, ah, they like that. And what was wonderful is that I talked to most of them, and it was so fascinating to see this really doing meditation, teaching the meditation, being great teachers. And, and in a way, it's kind of looking how through categorization, we actually close ourselves off from a lot of diverse creative encounter, or even generalization about ourselves, generalization about others. So to see that although it's something we need to do because it's useful, to see that it can become harmful in certain circumstances. So again, looking at when is it useful, when is it not useful. Then you have non-ill will. So basically this is about trying not to have aggressive, vengeful, resentful thought. And I would say one of the main ways Actually, because generally we try to be friendly people. But it's interesting to see that one of the phenomena you can have, you can notice in meditation, is what I call rumination. So you sit in meditation, and right now you are quite okay. But then you remember something that happened in the past which was painful. Then you get upset about it. They said this, they did this, how could they do this? This was so terrible, this was so awful. Then you bypass the present, and you go into the future, and you plot revenge. And generally, you start to think, and when I see them again, and they say that, and I'll say that, and I'll get them. Very compassionate activity on the cushion, <laughs> plotting a little nasty revenge. <coughs> And then, in a way to see that the pain in the past cannot be changed. This is something I think we have to accept. That whatever happened painfully in the past cannot be changed. We might learn from it. It could be composed from some new understanding. Or it could be composed to be careful with certain people. But we cannot change it. And in the future... They generally don't say what we plan for them to say, and then it doesn't work either. And you know, the only thing we can do is to really cultivate now. So I think this is something to see when we see ourselves starting to go into this kind of rumination, to really be careful with that. I remember some years ago, I, um, I went to South Africa, and then after a day, I phoned my mother, and I said, how are things? And my mother said, we were robbed. So some thief came and, well, she was uh, out shopping. And I could not do anything because I was uh, stuck there. And, but she had my family who could take care of her, so that was fine. And so I started to teach a retreat like I am doing here. And after a day, I was sitting doing the guided meditation. And suddenly I thought, wait a minute. And I realized for the last 24 hours, apart from sleeping, sleeping a bit, I had two types of rumination. 
The first one was how to make the house secure. Then I realized from here, no point, so I let it go. But the second one was actually about revenge. How am I going to get these guys if they come again? And what kind of trap could I set? And then, <laughs> then I thought, wait a minute, you know. This is not very creatively being mindful here. And then, but as soon as I saw it, then it went. Because I really saw this was not appropriate thinking. So anyway, just to see. Because sometimes, you know, the shock has to go through the system. So, of course, we'll go into this negative rumination, relatively aggressive rumination, and then to see it with a creative mindfulness to see, wait a minute, do I want to continue to do this or do I want to do something else? I think that's what the meditation gives us is to see what we think and then to have the choice instead of being really caught in the thought pattern. Then you have renunciation. And renunciation, I think, has many different aspects. Restraint, contentment, let go, creative engagement. And the first one, I would say, restraint is, in a way, discipline. That at some point, sometime, we have to stop. We have to not engage in some behavior. If we know they're harmful for ourselves and others, for example, if we're addicted to drugs and alcohol, in a way, we have to stop. And of course, it's difficult because some people, they can drink a bit, and it's fine. One glass a day, it's fine. Nothing happened to them. And other people, they take one glass, and three days later, they can be in a coma. Or they can be like, I was reading this book of this fellow who was really quite high in the TV industry. And he was really an alcoholic, and he was just kind of like he went to a, a conference on TV, and then he found himself sitting on the bench three days later, having gone on a kind of a binge, alcohol binge. And then finally, he, kind of, he went to rehab, and then finally sorted it out. But he really could not take one drink. So sometimes the renunciation is accepting, restraining, I cannot do this because I have no, re I cannot help myself with this. And then we really generally have to really have this restraint. But it doesn't mean that renunciation is just about restraint, but one aspect of it is that, because it would be harmful. Or you have contentment, which I would associate with simplicity, to be contented. To me, that's part of renunciation. And there is a wonderful sutta in the Pali Canon, wonderful sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, in the four. And the Buddha, and the title is Noble Lineage. So this is a sutta who is finally going to give us a latest lowdown on what is lineage. Well, this is a big thing in some tradition, lineage. And so the Buddha starts by this paragraph, kind of presenting something which really great expectation is built up. You know, who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha who really cultivate in such a fantastic way that they belong to this wonderful, fantastic, noble lineage? So you really expect something big. And what does it say? How can we belong to the noble lineage of the Buddha? First one, to be contented with one's food. Second, to be contented with one's clothes. Third, to be contented with one's shelter. Fourth, to enjoy meditation. That's all it requires. So we could all be here. I think we're part of the noble lineage. <laughs> shelter? And and it's one, but you see, if, I, mean, I don't have the text on me right now. But what is very interesting is that he says, you know, to be contented with the food. And then he says, you know, don't be picky about this and don't be picky about that. And he's addressing the monks. And he looked like the monks where, I mean, there is all this really funny to read. They were really doing lots of things to get really nice food. 
or the special type of food. Then the same with the clothes. Like it looks like the monk were really trying to get, you know, nicer robe, a nicer thread, and a little softer. And he's saying, huh, be content with what you have. Shelter the same. Seemingly they were adding little windows and little curtains with little design. And I think it's wonderful in a way. You can imagine all these guys, you know, trying to, or ladies trying to be really renunciate, but wouldn't it be nice to have been curtain, you know, type of thing. And so he said, so in a way it's simple. And to me this is like when we live in this world which supposedly should be, is abundant, should be abundant, and you feel dissatisfied. If only I had this then I would be happy. And I think in a way renunciation is turning it round and looking, what is it I have now that I can appreciate, that I could be content with? And I think it's, it's kind of an exploration in my life. Where could, could I have some contentment? What kind of contentment would it be? How would it be expressed? Physically, mentally, emotionally. What does it mean to be content? Then you have renunciation as letting go. And often renunciation is seen as this really huge forcing letting go. And often we see letting go as forcing ourselves not to do something. When personally, I feel that true renunciation is actually when you don't thirst after something, that the thirst has gone. The craving has gone and it's kind of like, well, I could have it or not. And to see that often, why we cannot renounce something is not because the thing is amazing, but because of what we have added to it. Often we exaggerate things. I remember I was in this uh, taxi. This is when I really saw renunciation. I was in a taxi in Seoul as a nun many years ago, many years ago. And so we're driving a little dangerously because a guy cannot stop being amazed by me, being a Westerner and being a nun, a celibate nun. And so he's really impressed. And so he goes, what? You are a nun? This is amazing. This is amazing. What? This is amazing. I mean, you know, you don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't have sex. You don't go to parties, etc., etc." And I was sitting there thinking, but I don't want to do any of this thing. So for me, this was not renunciation. Because generally, I, you know, renunciation is like you really renounce and it's so painful. But I was sitting there and I wanted none of what he wanted. So in a way, to see, to me, in a way, renunciation is when the exaggeration goes. Because often when we grasp, this is why do we grasp? We grasp because we identify. I need this. You see, a little with renunciation, the difference is between needs and wants. What is it I need? I mean, as Buddha said, we need food, water, shelter, medicine, clothes. So we have certain needs. But then this is hard. What is it I need? What is it I want? At the moment, I see iPad 2 everywhere, all over the place. And I'm thinking, all these people want one. And I must say, I got one. But not because of the ads. <laughs> because it's so light. And that I, for my uh, bag. But it, I, you see all this ad of these objects. That it be a dress, that it be a book, whatever it is. And you feel. And the way they present it is like, wow, it's amazing. This is going to sort my life, you know. My iPad 2 did not sort my life. <laughs> At times it makes it more complicated when it does not work, but outside of that. But just to see that often we, we kind of think, mm, 
we expect something from it which is not going to deliver. And then we're going to be disappointed and then the next thing which is going to give it to us. So in a way, I think renunciation nearly is not renouncing the fact we have things, etc., but renouncing the hope that this is going to do it. So in a way, renouncing the exaggeration, renouncing the proliferation around what we want, and instead to see, okay, do I need this? Will I use it in a good way? Then from that, I wanted to go a little into the next one. So this was appropriate thought. Then I have done the next one, which is appropriate speech. But I want to go to the next one, which is appropriate action. Because I think this links, the, all, all these links anyway. So appropriate action... Appropriate action is basically to abstain from killing things, from taking what is not given, from misconduct, etc., etc. So basically, is being harmless. It's kind of basically appropriate action is about compassionate action, harmless action. But in a way, what is interesting is that most of the time we're not going to kill people, we're not going to steal, we're not going to do things which are unethical most of the time. And then it's interesting to again to look, what is it that might lead me to stealing? What is it that might lead me to hurting? We might not kill, but to hurting. Or in our mind to kill somebody. I mean, when you are in the office... You are in your office and things are not working and somebody is really, really difficult. What do you think? If only that person was not in the office, then I would be happy or the office would be working. I mean, you're not physically killing the person, but you're saying, if only they did not exist in my life, then it would be fine. So it's a bit the same. I remember when I was in um, first nun in Korea, and we used to be, you know, four uh, ladies sharing uh, a small room. And I used to think, wow, if only they were not there, I'm sure I could meditate better. You know? And so finally it happened that they all left to meditate somewhere else. And so for a whole season, I was on my own. I thought, great. Now meditation can really start. You know, nobody to bother me. Within two weeks, I thought, does not make a difference? <laughs> it's not because of them, it's because of me that I can't meditate. So it's easy you know, to think, if only they were not existing. But actually, sometimes, yes, they're really problematic, but a lot of the time, it's a little because of us. But what is interesting in terms of appropriate action is, in a way, what leads us to be unethical. And I would say a lot of the time, it's feeling torn. Like somebody was talking about working with meditation in jail. And a lot of the time, the people you meet in jail is generally, they've done something unethical. A lot of the time, because of feeling torn. Generally because of unpleasant feeling torn. The first one, killing, violence. Often it's an unpleasant feeling torn. Something has happened, you feel really, <gasps> and you want to get rid of the feeling. You want to get rid of the per person or create the feeling. <coughs> and so in a way to see that. So I think a lot of the, the, the killing, the violence is because, you know, that person, you know, said something nasty to me or did something nasty to me. I'm going to get them. Often they're very impulsive. You have these violent feelings. Uh, recently I was... Um, 
watching a program on TV because I just could not believe it. It was about men, violent men, killing their wives and then having to go to justice to be kind of uh, getting sentenced. And so they were looking at the, why did these men kill their wives? And they said, both men said, I love my wife so much. So they killed them because they love them too much. But I don't think so. I think they killed them because of an unpleasant feeling. So at that moment, they wanted to get rid of the unpleasant feeling, kill the wife, which now they, she's not here and they love her so much, then they have more unpleasant feeling. But on the moment, they thought this was get rid of them. Often that's what we do. If, all, if I do this, then the unpleasant feeling will go. Sometimes it does. A lot of the time it does not. Or stealing. Stealing has to do more to pleasant feeling. You have something which is pleasant. Mm, I like that book. Mm, I like that. Mm, I want it. I remember where, I mean, I think this is what was my first insight. Even before I became a, a nun, when I was 18, and I was living in England, and... I used to go to spiritual bookshop and I used to steal spiritual books. <laughs> so I did it a few times until it and I used to read them too. <laughs> and finally they had some effect because I thought, wait a minute, this is not all. Stealing spiritual books, this is contradictory. You can't do this. So I decided I, I must not steal books anymore. But I had so much uh, a pleasant feeling when I went to bookshop <laughs> and I had so little money. So after that, I stopped going to bookshops and then I resolved the problem. Renunciation. <laughs> then you have again sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct, it's the same. You have a pleasant feeling and forget it, anything else. I want to have this pleasant feeling. I want to continue with it. And so, in a way, it's again, not that there is no problem with the sexual act, but is it ethical? Is it going to create harm for myself, harm for others? And so to see, you know, what happens there. And recently there, is a, there was a book, no mention of name, somebody saying they are Arans. But it's interesting, Is a certain type of Arans who still has a desire when they're not supposed to have desire anymore. And so I think one has to be careful with these um, teachers who say they're enlightened or they're, I don't know, Arahant or whatever. But still, even though they're beyond it all, the first thing they want to do is drink and have sex. I'm a little dubious about that myself. Personally, I think it's more that they might have some great experience, but they still have pleasant feeling connected to sex, connected to alcohol. Otherwise, as the Dalai Lama said, if they're so enlightened, if they're so transcendent, they should be able to drink urine and eat feces, and then they would prove their great enlightenment. <laughs> so let's put them to the test. <laughs> So basically, we have contact and we have feeling tone. To me, that's one of the great teachings of the Buddha. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tones. And what happened with those? Because I think they are what really a lot of the time determine our action. Pleasant feeling tone, I want more, I want it to continue, I want it to repeat itself. Like when you have a weekend with your friends. You had such a nice weekend. It was so fun. Everything went perfect. They leave the room, they leave the door, and you say, let's do this again. Meaning, let's repeat exactly the same experience that we have, exactly the same feeling too. I'm not saying you should not have another nice, nice weekend with your friends, but it's unlikely that you're going to reproduce exactly the same experience. To see that. It's not saying that we should not have pleasant feeling. The Buddha is very clear. We need to have pleasant feeling in order to kind of feel more uplifted. 
but to be careful with the grasping at them. Or you have unpleasant, unpleasant feeling we want to push away, we want to reject, and that makes them even stronger. So is how can we be with unpleasant feeling? That, I think, is kind of like, it doesn't mean we want more of them, then we can experiment more. I would not recommend that. But how can we be with unpleasantness, unpleasant sensation? And there I would go back to the stability, to the stability of the mindfulness, of the concentration. How can I be with this? How has it arisen? Is it changing? How can I creatively engage with it? And then you have the neutral feeling tone. They are my favorite. I'm very keen on neutral feeling too. (laughs) Because I think this was possibly another discovery of the Buddha. The fact that sometimes you have neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling too. Relatively neutral. But nowadays, neutral feeling tone has a very bad press. And I would say it started out with the romantics. It's all because of the romantics. They wanted excitement. But there was this uh, wonderful uh, quote from uh, a nun. That's why it stayed in the Pali Canon. One of the quotes is by. It's not by the Buddha, it's by a nun. And the Buddha said, yes, 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 this is good. And she said, when a pleasant feeling continues, it's pleasant. When it stops, it becomes unpleasant. When an unpleasant feeling continues, it turns pleasant. When it stops, it becomes pleasant. Think of the non-headache, of the non-stomach ache. Then the last one is interesting also. If a neutral fi- if you understood neutral feeling, it becomes pleasant. If you do not understand neutral feeling, it becomes unpleasant. And I think this is nowadays neutral feeling is so associated with boredom. And people can actually be so anxious about nothing is happening. Some years ago, my niece used to come to stay with us, and she used to have attacks of boredom. I am bored! She would cry and shout and get very excited negatively about being bored. When if we understand neutral feeling, actually it's restful, it's peaceful. Nothing bad is happening. This is already something. (laughs) And so in a way, I think that when we meditate, it's interesting to be aware of the feeling tone. Pleasant feeling tone, unpleasant feeling tone, neutral feeling tone, and to see how can I creatively engage with them. So it's not that you're supposed to have this feeling tone or that. No, they just, you have contact, you have feeling, they just arise. But how can we be aware of them first? See that they determine a lot of our action, a lot of what we say, and try to more creatively engage with them. I think this is really part of our task as meditator. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. It's interesting that this description of action is sort of refraining from action. Whereas in other traditions, actions are um, seemingly charity and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I did not that as I hear what you've said, appropriate action is not killing, not taking, not hurting, not stealing, uh, not grasping, refraining. It's, uh, it's a refraining from certain types of behavior. In other traditions, often action, right action is associated with charity, with giving, with uh, providing for the poor. Would you want to comment on that at all? No, it's, it's, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, 
I'm not. I'm talking about the the, the eightfold path as it's defined, but it's kind of like basically it's you could say appropriate action is about ethical precepts, and ethical precepts can be presented in two ways, and I would say it's the same. I mean, I could. Uh, I just gave this talk in that way. I could give it the other way around, <laughs> which is what I'm going to do when I uh, start a retreat. Generally, the way I present ethics when I start a retreat is about generosity. It's about um, being kind of kind to each other. It's about being respectful of uh, each other's space. It's about cultivating appropriate speaking. It's about clarity. So again, I totally agree with you. When you have ethics, you can look at it just in terms of not doing something. But you see, I would say that not doing something actually creates the space to do something. And so, and so I would totally agree with you, of course, that one, one needs to present both. But uh, in one day, it's <laughs> little. It's more when I talk of uh, compassionate, uh, compassion, love, and compassion, and generally I talk about all these kind of things, but not in this one. Sorry about that. <laughs> but you see, what was interesting is when Buddhism went into China. So when Buddhism went into China, it actually there, the, the idea was very much about um, compassion to the family. And then Buddhism more, more brought more that kind of egalitarian compassion to all life. And that had an amazing effect in terms of what uh, they started to create, like uh, granary in time of need, like repairing roads for, for people, like uh, helping out people. So it, and that was very early on. That was like in the 5th, 5th, 6th century. Just that idea, it was interesting, to move from an idea of just compassion, love for the family and the ancestor, and to have that more egalitarian idea of compassion then started a whole different way of uh, civic life, especially with the Buddhist. The kind of like social action, but uh, early on. <laughs> so yes, of course. I think it, it, well, you have to be careful of not just talking in terms of restraint, but also in terms of what can we do in a positive manner. I totally agree. Just a little... As an aside, just so I've heard that described as antidotes, like generosity as an antidote to greed, um, wisdom, clarity as an antidote to hatred, a a skill and means antidotes. You could look at it, I mean, you can look at it as an antidote, but personally, since I'm very focused on condition, I look more at it in terms that. What are the conditions that going to are more likely to give rise to wisdom, to compassion, to wise compassionate action? And actually, you see, you could force yourself to be generous. You could, you know, I'll be generous. But I think in a way, before just being generous, you need to, to me, it's kind of add to comes from also a place uh, which is not grasping anymore. So I would say that as you are less grasping, less identifying, then you become more spacious. And actually then there is more space to be more inclined toward generosity. So I would say there are kind of like a different uh, side to it, that we can be generous as I'm going to be generous, which I think is a good idea. Then also responding with generosity because in that moment you have the space to do it and not to think so much of yourself or thinking less of your suffering and more of other people's suffering. So I think there is uh, the two aspects. Yes, of course. Yes. I think the answer to that question is the context of the Eightfold Path. 
It is in the context of the Four Noble Truths. And in there, the, the means to get rid of suffering or to, to take care of craving is the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. And the mean, so the means involves not to do certain things, so it will give you a field in which you can, uh, you can be happy. But as far as virtue goes, there are the paramitas, kinds of things that totally focus on the virtues of the kind that he's talking about. And um, as for my question, mm-hmm. um, I had a little bit of un- uh, difficulty understanding the notion of understanding and neutral feeling. Does, did she mean if you look at it the right way, it can be pleasant, or if you don't look at it the right way or accept it, it can be unpleasant. Is that what is meant or is it something else? It looks like that. That's what it looks to me because we can know. You're sitting, nothing is happening. So one could say a pretty neutral state. But then how you're going to perceive it is going to make a big difference if you have pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling or continue to have neutral feeling. You see, if you think nothing is happening, I am bored, I am a boring person, I am so boring, nobody is going to love me, my life is terrible, life has no meaning. I mean, you could, from just a little neutral feeling, <laughs> quickly you can have fairly unpleasant feeling. Otherwise, you could, hmm, nothing is happening. Hmm, this is restful, nice, nice. I can just hang out, smell the air, watch the roses, and then it becomes a little pleasant. My feeling is a little it's a, of that nature. I have uh, two questions. One is, um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, thought as empty or thought as potent. You know, if, uh, you know, there's this, like, uh, you know, thoughts as empty or uh, there's also the other extreme where uh, you might hear theory about how powerful a thought is, right? And then, uh, and then the other would be... Um, to the question of, you know, renunciation as when the thirst is gone, that example. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about conditioning around, you know, uh, kind of the concept of until it's burned up, it's like as karma, maybe for lack of, I don't know how else to talk about it. But, you know, we all have different levels of thirst or appetite due to our conditions Mm -hmm. of our life and our practice and everything else. And maybe... How do we relate to that with practice, like around expectations of what, you know, what we can, you know, if we're thirsty, do I, you know, is it like, do do I just keep practicing or do, you know, how do you relate to that? Okay. So it's two questions. I'll answer the first one, the one about the power of the thought. I think it depends what we mean by power. Do we mean power as in magical power? If I think enough about something, it's going to materialize. Or if I think enough, I won't be ill. Or if I think enough, whatever. Personally, I am very pragmatic. (laughs) So I don't believe in magic. But at one level, it's true. Thought can be very powerful. I mean, if I think long long enough about I really can't stand this person, you could go and kill the person. I mean, you can really think yourself into killing somebody, or you can think yourself into loving somebody even if they don't love you. I mean, we have many cases of people stalking people because they totally convince the person loves them when those seems to be true. So, yeah, I mean, you, you can think all kinds of things which can be very powerful and I would say very dangerous. So that's maybe a negative power. Positive power you can, and I think the, the I'll talk about this uh, next. Uh, the Buddha, I think, really believed in the po- positive power of thought. The fact that, in a way, through um, appropriate, skillful, wise understanding, you could really, in a way, nearly see the world in a different way. You can really kind of 
look at yourself, look at others in a different way. And I think that's what loving kindness is about, rejoicing, the four Brahma Vihara are very much about that. So there are many different practices in Buddhism to actually, I would say, have the power of thought, what I would call a creative power of thought, but not magical in twin. Suddenly an elephant appear in this room. Sorry, but I don't believe in this yet. <laughs> then the aspect about, you see, we have to, if we look at condition, we have functioning. There is a basic functioning to the human system. And one of the basic functioning of the human system is survival. This organism, any organism, wants to survive. So you're born, you don't know why you're born, but let's go for life. Generally, that's the way it goes, unless there is some big problem and then it doesn't go that way. But generally, we want to survive. And so a lot of our, our habits are about survival, survival mechanism, the way we think, the way we feel, etc., etc. But then over time, this can be developed positively or this can be developed negatively. So I think we have to be careful not to think. I know, of course, in Buddhism, they talk of nirvana and there is no craving anymore and all this kind of thing. But let's put this aside, what would I call a little idealistic notion. But let's look at it in terms of our experience. So in terms of our experience, I would say certain patterns, if they're not too embedded, sometimes with the meditation they can go. Something you've done for 30 years and you really see it. You really see the pain of it and it can go. But I would say certain patterns are very embedded either because of physiological, emotional or mental tendency or because something has happened in your life which makes you make feel more likely that way, then this, I think, is more powerful. And so I doubt that this will go. But I would say that the meditation, the cultivating the path, can de-intensify them. So let's say if you have a tendency to be angry, before you used to be angry for a week, now you're angry for a day. Personally, I think it's improvement for yourself and others. Then you become angry for 10 minutes instead of a day. That, I think, also is improvement. So that's why I think we have to be careful of not thinking of meditation necessarily as eradication. Because sometimes the third of the noble truth is, is understood as cessation. Everything is going to cease. Possibly it will cease for a minute or two, but forever, as long as you are in this body, I mean, even the Buddha had the nirvana without flow because he was in the body. He needed to eat, he needed, I mean, there was basic stuff. So I think if we don't go into idealism about this cessation, I think sometimes we can have cessation in a moment. Like, I think it was last year. Maybe this year, I can't remember. But anyway, I was teaching a retreat. And suddenly, I had cessation of desire. It was really fascinating, really interesting. There was, it, there was feeling tone, but there was no desire for 24 hours. It was really interesting to see. The mind did not go anywhere to grasp at anything. Very interesting. Then it was very interesting how it slowly came back in. <laughs> what about this? What about that? But the fact that there was no desire did not mean I was not alive. It did not mean I was not doing my job of teaching the retreat or anything like that. It's just a certain, a certain something had gone. It was very interesting. And to see it went and then it, uh, the whole thing kind of came up again. So it just... So I don't know if that's what you were talking about. So I think, again, we have to, personally, I would be careful about being idealistic, you know, 100%. But I think to me more it's about what is the least I can do? And then slowly by little, 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 then they can be less grasping. 
And generally, I would say then it's generally easier for yourself, easier for others. And it's not only something is removed, but something can be cultivated instead. Something can be developed instead. So I really see us removing the obstacle by removing, but not enforcing, but they dissolve. Then actually something else can be developed, can be exercised. So I think that's why... Personally, I talk about creative engagement because I think it's not just cessation of something. But by dis- dissolving something then, something else, there can be more creativity. And maybe we should have a, some walking now because we've been sitting. So maybe let's walk for um, 20 minutes. Just walk for 20 minutes. And then I would, what I would suggest in the walking meditation, that it be indoor or outdoor, is to be aware of sensation in the body as an anchor, and at the same time trying to be aware of feeling tones. Either feeling tone internal sensation in the body, or if you walk outside, feeling tone in terms of maybe sensation with the heat on the face, or sensation when you see, if you walk on the pavement and you see the various houses, mm, like that one, wouldn't mind two of them, or whatever, you know, and this car, it's terrible, whatever, just to notice. So either within the sensation in the body or what we, you see, when what you see, because we very respond a lot to what we see, and that's what we can uh, explore when we walk in meditation outside, what you see, and then the feeling tone that it arises, and also seeing the feeling tone is impermanent. Arise, passes away, changing within itself. And then I'll uh, do the clock at uh, 3.30.